There's a poster online that you can uh, order for about $50, and in the foreground is a traditional London phone booth, like, likely the most photographed phone booth in London. And in the background is the Palace of Westminster, particularly the famous Elizabeth Tower, popularly known as Big Ben. And I learned something about Big Ben. Big Ben is actually a nickname for the great bell inside the tower. Uh, it's the biggest bell, which is part of the great clock of Westminster. And so to be precise, Big Ben is actually the great bell. Uh, but the, the name Big Ben is often associated with the great clock and tower, which houses the great bell. Anyway, back to the poster. In the background stands the neo-Gothic grandeur of Big Ben. But the iconic structure is not the focal point. The focal point is the phone booth. Why? Well, the photo is black and white, except for the phone booth. The phone booth is bright red, and it's the attention grabber of the poster. And I think this poster makes a powerful point about the church. The church is like those little red phone booths in black and white London. They're bright, they're unique, they're distinguished, they're scattered throughout the city, and though they're surrounded by immense iconic architecture, they are attention-grabbing because they're colorfully different. Interestingly, right above the door uh, of the booth and, and right above the sign that says telephone, above that is cut into the section of the phone booth a crown, a type of royal seal. Now, I understand that cell phones have made phone booths obsolete. When was the last time any of you used a phone booth? Probably not recently. Um, but at one time, those bright red phone booths served society. They were a means of communication and connection. And brothers and sisters, we are like those bright red phone booths. We are different from everyone else, here to help the world. And in our distinction, people see Christ. The point I'm after today is simple. Brothers and sisters, God calls us to be different from everyone else in order to influence the world for his glory and the good of society. Now, before I get too far, let me confess that I'm wrestling to understand a certain detail about the Sermon on the Mount. I mentioned this tension several weeks ago, but I'm, I'm still working on it, still thinking about it. I've, I've treated the Sermon on the Mount as if Jesus taught it to his disciples in the broad sense of disciples. But I'm, I'm thinking he may have addressed the 12 particularly and only indirectly the other disciples. Matthew isn't explicit about it, and I'm intrigued with verse 12, which links the disciples to the prophets. And the prophets were uniquely chosen and ordained preachers of the gospel, as were the 12 disciples or apostles. So though the Sermon on the Mount is applicable to all disciples, Jesus may have been teaching his 12 chosen disciples, particularly as ordained preachers of the gospel and as the foundation of the church. Ephesians 2.20 is, is interesting. It says built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So there you have, have a link. And Jesus was clearly linking disciples with prophets. So the Sermon on the Mount, hey, hear this loud and clear. It's for the entire church. However, I'm increasingly thinking that it may have been intended for his 12 disciples as leaders and ordained ministers of the gospel for the church. So please just 
carefully consider that point as we continue. Verses 11 and 12 are transitional. Jesus taught his disciples that, that they would suffer persecution on his account, which identifies them with God's prophets who suffered the same. And as the 12 disciples went out preaching repentance in the kingdom of heaven, persecution would come, giving cause for rejoicing and gladness in their solidarity with Jesus Christ, the preeminent persecuted prophet. And though it's a blessed truth, uh, verses 11 and 12 are sobering. Not easy for the 12 to swallow, not easy for any disciple to swallow, even if there are great rewards, but lest the promise of persecution would leave them defeated before the mission ever started, Jesus used two metaphors of salt and light to give them assurance and hope. His 12 chosen disciples would have a positive influence on the world for his glory, as would the broader body of disciples, the entire church. It was not a meaningless or an ill-fated mission to live for Christ in righteousness. Their influence would be great upon the world. So I think the application for us today is God calls us to be different from everyone else. In order to influence the world for his glory and the good of society. So let's unpack that. Brothers and sisters, we are the salt of the earth. We are the salt of the earth. Verses, uh, in verse 13, Jesus told his disciples this, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, this analogy is helpful in at least two ways. His disciples are to be a distinct preservative and a distinct flavor in the world. A distinct preservative and a distinct flavor. Salt was used in ancient times as a preservative. No refrigerators, no freezers. Douse a piece of meat with salt and you could preserve it. See, the meat would decay on its own, but salt would preserve or slow down the decay of the meat. So saints, look around you. Look around you. The, the world is decaying in sin and brokenness. And God calls his church to have a preserving influence on the world. What Paul described in 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 5 is the decay that we see around us in the world today. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And that describes our culture, that describes our society, and sadly, that even describes many churches. We can see the, the decay. What will slow it down? What will slow it down? Saints, the world needs the church to be salty. Salty. To live holy lives for God's glory. Jesus he was training the, the 12 for their preaching and their teaching ministry for the good of the world. The disciples would be of no effect, no effect in the world if they were not different from everyone else. Salt 
is distinct from that which it preserves. To be a Christian is to be different from the world, to not fit in, to be an oddity because of solidarity with Jesus Christ who did not fit in. So teenagers, teenagers, maybe this is particularly for you. I know the intrigue and pull of popularity and fitting in, but you have to be under, uh, understand this. Uh, teenagers, listen closely. That popularity is not a Christian virtue. If everyone likes you, it's likely you are not being faithful to Christ. Secondly, notice in verse 13, Jesus mentioned taste. Now, if all that Jesus had in mind was the preserving effect of salt, why did he mention taste? Well, salt enhances the flavor of food. Jesus taught his disciples to be a distinct flavor in the world. Finecooking.com said this about salt. We like the taste because our bodies need sodium chloride. Salt has the amazing ability to intensify agreeable tastes and diminish disagreeable ones. Some flavor compounds are too subtle to detect, but when you add even just a teeny amount of salt, neurological magic happens. Suddenly, our taste receptors can detect flavors they weren't able to sense before. Isn't that interesting? The world needs the church to be salty. Because when the word is publicly preached and the church lives out what is preached, the flavor of God's glory is intensified for the world and wickedness is decelerated. People need to taste and see that the Lord is good. And this comes through the church being tasty in the world, in the public proclamation of the gospel and in gospel-saturated living. Now, I like to grill. Uh, and I'm still, still striving to cook that perfect restaurant-grade steak on my grill. And it hasn't happened yet, folks. It just hasn't happened. But I can stay at it. And, but I know this much is, is true, that the steak just won't taste good without a lot of salt. Saints, we need to be salty. We need to be salty, and we're salty when we're being transformed by the gospel and we're living by the Spirit's power in joyful and thankful obedience to God's commands. And as we do this, we are the savor of God's grace in the world, the savor of God's grace in the world. So many churches in America are completely irrelevant and useless because they are just like the world. They celebrate what the world celebrates, and they yawn at what God celebrates. William Hendrickson, he wrote this years ago, but um, since now it's passed on. But this is what he said. Worldly-mindedness or secularization is here condemned, but so is also aloofness or isolationism. Christians, by showing themselves to be Christians indeed, are constantly combating moral and spiritual decay. We are not combating moral and spiritual decay when we are celebrating it as the world does. A church is useless if it's just like the world, and it's useless if it's withdrawn entirely from the world. We must not be like the world, but we must also be seeking to reach the world. 
The church of Jesus Christ is not salty if it is celebrating things like homosexuality or transgenderism or sensuality or any sexual sin. We are not salty if we celebrate abortion and divorce and chauvinism and feminism and theistic evolution and antinomianism and the like. We, we, we are different from everyone else. And if we're not different from everyone else, we're useless. The true church is in the world, but not of the world, and is a distinct flavor. A distinct flavor. It's different, and it's helping people taste and see that the Lord is good. Brothers and sisters, we are not the world. And we are not like the world. We are the salt of the earth. A distinct preservative, a distinct flavor. And as we are different, we help people taste the goodness and the grandeur of God. Now, we must think carefully, though. The social gospel is not the gospel. The gospel of the life, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the gospel. We don't start with social justice. But, listen carefully, if we care at all about the true gospel, we will care about social justice. And we won't just sit here as wickedness takes over. We will strive to make a difference in the world for the glory of Christ and the good of our neighbor. Of course the social gospel is not the gospel. Of course. Of course we don't start with the social gospel, of course. We start with the person and work of Jesus Christ. But whatever your view is on the social gospel, be clear about this. The true gospel makes us greatly concerned about any and all unbiblical and wicked injustice or inequality or bias or discrimination in the world around us. We, we do not define injustice or inequality or bias or, or discrimination by the world's standards as they make a mess of all of that, but by Holy Scripture alone. And when we see that evil is making progress in the world, we should mourn enough to be salty where the decay is happening. We are here to make a difference according to the sovereign will and decree of God. As a public proclamation of the law and gospel and bearing witness to the excellencies of God in culture and society and, and living righteous lives are our main objectives, we must not detach from culture and society altogether and retreat from the battle of fighting for good and righteousness in the world. As culture and society burn to the ground, we don't just throw our hands up waiting for the return of Christ while we have buckets of water in our hands. We don't turn blind eyes to injustices all around us as we hold Bibles to our faces, not wanting to see the destruction around us. That doesn't make any sense. As the church, we preach the law and gospel with hope and we live in a way that promotes good in society. Not because that this life is all that there is, that's not why, but because we care about the reign of Christ over all the earth, a reality that has started now in the church and will be completed at the return of Christ. That's why we care about Christ and his glory. 
Now, as we go through this, uh, atheist and agnostic chemists may have a problem with verse 13. Sodium chloride is a stable chemical compound. It doesn't lose its saltiness. Now, careful. The ancient salt that Jesus referenced was sodium chloride mixed with various impurities, kind of a crude type of thing. And if salt encountered moisture, the sodium chloride would dissolve, leaving the bland and useless and unsalty impurities behind, which are good for nothing. And Jesus was right. Those impurities are worthless, and they're just tossed out to be trampled upon by men. So so let me ask, do you understand what Jesus is getting at? This is a powerful point to be considered. What use is the church if it is not thoroughly different from everyone else? If it is not salty, what use? J.C. Ryle said about salt, it is useful so long as it preserves its savor, but no longer. Brothers and sisters, our usefulness in the world is our saltiness. And if we are not salty, if we are just like everyone else, we are useless in the mission. One source rightly said this, Christians whose value and conduct do not remain distinct from the culture around them fail in their mission. Saints, if we are not salty, we are failing. If we live like the world, if we live like everyone else, we are failing in God's mission for us. I just encourage you, be different from everyone else. Be different. Be like Jesus. He was so radically different. He just didn't fit in. Be like him. Next, brothers and sisters, we are the light of the world. We are the light of the world. Jesus taught his disciples in verse 14, you are the light of the world. But you see, Jesus said on another occasion, I am the light of the world. Uh, In John 9, 5, he said this, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. God is light. Jesus is light. If Jesus is the light of the world, what did he mean by calling his disciples the light of the world? Dr. Hendrickson said, He is the light lighting. They are the light lighted. Jesus is the light lighting, and his disciples are the light lighted. The church is the light of the world inasmuch as they shine the light of Christ through righteousness. The disciples are the light of the world only in so much as they shine the light of Christ in their lives. Why does the moon shine at night? The sun shines upon it and it reflects. Why does your porch light shine in the night? Because the bulb is powered by electricity coming to it and filling it. We shine because Christ shines in and through us. That's the only sense in which we are the light of the world. A bulb that does not shine is thrown out. Tossed off. We don't need it anymore. It's useless. And I think we ought to let that sink in. Think about what Jesus said in verse 14. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Have any of you been to Quito, Ecuador? 
Anybody? Quito, Ecuador? Okay. Yes, one person. Awesome. Very cool. Well, I have not been there. I, I, I wish. Uh, but I saw it online. Not as good, but there we go. Well, it's this distant city that's built on this small mountain. And at the top is a 45-meter-tall monument of the Virgin of El Panicillo. Uh, when Quito is lit up at night, how do you hide it? How do you go about hiding that? You can't. It's like, bam, there's the city, and it's lit up, and, and everyone can see it, and it's not going away, and it's up there, it's elevated, it's bright, it's attractive. You look at it. A lit city cannot be hidden. Now, imagine that you came over for our house, to our house uh, for dinner, and it's dark out, and you, you come in, and we turn on our dining room chandelier. And as my kids seat you at the table, I bring in a black plastic trash bag and some duct tape, and I start covering the chandelier. And you find this itch ritual just a little bit odd, but you don't say anything. And, and I cover the entire chandelier with the bag, and then I duct tape it at the top, okay? And, and then we all sit there in darkness, and you wonder... What's wrong with your pastor? I wonder if he's stressed. And, and you, you can't see this perfect restaurant-grade steak that I've cooked you and laid before. You can't even see it. And you wonder, you know, are other pastors as unstable as our pastor? Who does this? And, and, if, and, and imagine that I said nothing throughout the entire night. My family said nothing. We just carried on as everything was normal. And you're sitting in the dark, and we're trying. You're like, this is weird. And it's still, it's still on, but it's covered with a bag. You, I, I don't think you'd easily forget that night together with the shirts. Jesus said in verse 15, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. You don't light a lamp only to then cover it up. That's ridiculous. That makes no sense. People don't do that. Now, there were a lot of one-room houses in Jesus' day. Lamps were lit, and they were put high on a stand, or they were hung from the rafters to give light to all that was in this one-room house. The house was dark, and, and the light shines in that dark house, and it makes living in that house so much more comfortable and, and much better for the people that are in the house. Do you understand what Jesus was saying regarding his disciples living in a dark world? Dr. Leon Morris said this, this homely illustration brings out an important function of discipleship. The very purpose of being a follower of Jesus is to give light. Giving light is not an option, so to speak, which the disciples may or may not choose. It is part of being a disciple, just as much part of discipleship as giving light is of a lighted lamp. Now, this is stuff we can understand, right? He's talking in plain terms. And, and Morris said, Jesus has chosen his own so that they may give light. It is the nature of light to shine, and when people have received the light of the gospel, they will shine in a dark world. That is the point of both comparisons. It is of the very nature of light that it brings illumination. Morris was right. Brothers and sisters, we must shine in the world. 
We must shine the truth and the beauty of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And as we, we do, we influence the world for the glory of God and the good of society, the good of our neighbors. How do you test if a light bulb is good? You give it power and you see if it lights up. And if it doesn't light up, it's not a good bulb and it's useless. You throw it out. When you know God through Christ, you inevitably shine. You shine. Your light is all that Jesus discussed in the Beatitudes. Calvin said, Now it is the property of light to be utterly distinct from darkness. The least spark in a dark room can be seen at once. The least spark. Are you at least a little spark in a dark world? Saints, you shine the light of Christ when everyone is self-righteous and you are poor in spirit. When everyone else celebrates sin and evil and you mourn it. When everyone else is prideful and self-reliant and you are meek and dependent on God. When everyone else hungers and thirsts for worldly pleasures and you hunger and thirst for righteousness and eternal pleasures. When everyone else seeks revenge, indulges in impurity, fights others to get what they want, compromises the truth to avoid pain, abandons Christ in order to be comfortable and are miserable in their perceived comfort and, and you, you as salt and light, extend mercy, are pure in heart, strive to make peace, promote the truth and are persecuted for it, stand in solidarity with Christ and are reviled and persecuted and lied about and you rejoice and are glad in the discomfort of persecution. That's what it is to shine. No one seasons and shines like Jesus Christ. He is pure flavor, pure light. Every aspect of his life was pure and undefiled and useful and oh, so flavorful. He, he, he exemplified everything in the Sermon on the Mount because he is the king of kings and his kingdom is one of righteousness and goodness and light. We do not season and shine unless we know Christ. We cannot season and shine unless we know Christ and we inevitably season and shine because we know Christ. So brothers and sisters, we are the salt of the earth. And brothers and sisters, we are the light of the world. And so this brings us to the third and last point. Brothers and sisters, God calls us to be different from everyone else in order to influence the world for his glory and the good of society. Verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus commanded it. Let your light shine before others. Command from the master. We must. It's not optional. And if we are not shining, brothers and sisters, not only does that call into question our identity but it means we are disobeying our master. We must take this shining business seriously. 
And it is no burden to hear, let your light shine before others. It is our privilege. We are light. We are children of light. That's our identity. The the thing we want more than anything else is to do what we were redeemed to do, to shine the light of Christ before the world. Our, Our greatest desire as citizens of Christ's kingdom is to live in the reality of his kingdom now. We want to. That's what we want to do. And we, we actually do that. It's not perfect. It's messy. It's, it's not complete yet until the king returns. But we're, we're doing it now. We're living in the kingdom now. As he reigns and rules over us, the church, and we do this by his grace, and we do it by his spirit at work in us. For what purpose, I think we need to ask a question like this and really think about it, for what purpose do we shine as light in a dark world? Why? What purpose? To crush the world? To feel good about ourselves like we're better? To show the world that we are better than them? To make everyone else around us in the world feel miserable and guilty and shameful and gross and freakish? You freaks, you're not as holy as us. Is that, is that it? To put people in their place? to make little cloisters and communes isolated from the rest of the world so we can protect our babies and keep everybody in? Why do we shine? Jesus explained. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The goal is the glorification of God. The glorification of God. In Matthew 6, it's later, we'll get to it in a little bit, Jesus warns against doing things to receive the applause and the accolades of men. That's wicked. That's wicked to do good things for your own self. God does not accept that. True good works are done for God's glory and they're done for the good of others. And we do that by the Spirit. He enables us to do that. We can do that. The the Beatitudes, they just help us understand true good works, as does the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll be going through. But let me give you an overall summary here that I think is helpful. Heidelberg 91 asks this, but what are good works? What are they? And it answers, only those which are done out of true faith in accordance with the law of God and to his glory and not those based on our own opinion or on precepts of men. That's a helpful clarification. People today try to do tons of good works, but they do them according to the precepts of men and not according to God's law, and they end up not doing any good works at all. Many so-called churches do exactly that. They redefine biblical terms like love, and make stuff up about how that works and and think that they are doing good by spreading lies about what love really is. They're not looking at God's, God's law. They're not doing good because the good they think they're doing does not conform to God's law and is not done for God's glory. It's useless. It's harmful. There's a lot of harmful churches out there. God's law explains how to do true good works. We shine when we live to emulate Jesus in his heartfelt and faithful obedience to God's law. What did he do but obey God's law? To emulate him is to live by God's law. 
We do good works by true faith for God's glory. That's shining. That's shining. And we should also consider Heidelberg 86, which asks this. Since we have been delivered from our misery by grace alone through Christ, without any merit of our own, why must we yet do good works? Why? Why do good works in this world? Let it burn. Why do good works? Here's the answer. And keeps verse 16 in mind. Because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit to be his image. So that with our whole life, we may show ourselves thankful to God for his benefits and he may be praised by us further that we ourselves may be assured of our faith by its fruits and that by our godly walk of life, we may win our neighbors for Christ. Brothers and sisters, we are different from everyone else because God has redeemed us. He is conforming us to the image of Christ. And we shine by our godly walk of life, which aims not only at God's glory, but at winning our neighbors for Christ. How do people know to give God the glory and not us when we're doing some good works? How does that even work? How do they know? People see staunch atheists do very helpful things for others. What's the difference? And it's simple. Let's not overcomplicate it. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's Colossians 3, 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything. Do everything. Do everything. Everything that you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. When you do good works, it's not even in the name of the generic God, but in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when you are grateful for God's amazing grace in Christ, when, when you unceasingly give thanks to God, People start to notice. They start to notice. And they pick up on why you do what you do. People who are grateful to God tend to bear witness or testimony to the goodness of God in their life as they do good works by his grace. And I just don't think this is rocket science. I don't think it's hard to understand. I think we know exactly what Jesus is getting at. It's just hard to do. People know to ascribe the glory of God not to us because of our gratitude for God's sovereign grace at work in our lives. We're just so thankful. And they sense that. And so where else are they going to give glory? We're not taking it for ourselves. First, are you different from everyone else? And second, do people understand why you're different? I think we all should be a bit more grateful and a bit more expressive. I know I can be. There is also implied in verse 16 a profound highlight of God's sovereignty. God gets the credit because he is working in our good works. 
Do you you understand that in the text? We do them, but only by his grace at work in us. That's the doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty in salvation, in faith, in sanctification, in good works. God is sovereign, and so he gets the glory, and no glory whatsoever is given to us. None. Not to our free will, not to anything in or done by us. It all goes to the Lord for his sovereign grace. All of it. Jesus reserves in this passage no credit to human anything. Our salvation as well as our sanctification as well as our good works is to the praise of God's glorious grace alone, alone, alone. And you get that wrong and the light is dimming. The light is turning down. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. Paul told the Ephesian church, walk as children of light. Philippians 2, 14 and 16 says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, why is that important? Why can't we just grumble a little bit here and dispute a little bit there? Because that's what everyone else does. And we're not everyone else. We're the redeemed. We must be different. Why? Paul continued that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Our difference, brothers and sisters, is our blamelessness, our innocence, our unblemished lives, not perfect. Are there days you just feel blemished? Mm Mm-hmm. That you feel less than innocent? Mm Mm-hmm. Less than perfect, less than, I'm not a bright light. We're not talking perfection, we're talking faithfulness. Faithful, a small spark. Maybe a little match. You know, maybe at first, and and it's so strong, and then it kind of tapered back, you know. Do Do you identify with that? The world is crooked. The world is twisted. They don't know God, but we do. We do know God, and so we shine the light of his truth and goodness and mercy and grace and glory in the world as we hold fast to his word. We hold fast to his truth, the word of life, so that they encounter the light of Christ in us, the savor of Christ in us. Brothers and sisters, we must be different from everyone else. Why are we trying so hard to fit in? We don't fit in. We're freaks. If you're here right now, you're a freak. You know, we're just different. We think differently. We operate on a different set of values. We we, we don't come to the same conclusions about things. We say, no, I, I, I would rather not do that when everybody else is wanting to do that. We're just like, no, no thanks, I... I'd rather follow Christ. We're freaks. Freaks. Brothers and sisters, we must be different. Our Father calls us to holiness. And we see this perfectly in his son Jesus, whom we are called to imitate. He's holy. He's a freak. You know I'm using that positively in a reverent He's awesomely different and distinct. 
He doesn't fit in. He's an oddity. And we want to be just like him. And so our goal is not to be just weird. Don't be that. But to just be like him. And let that patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and all that just make us freaks. Oddities. So I want to end with a powerful application from J.C. Ryle. His words are so fitting to end this sermon and to rally us to true holiness. So I want you to listen closely. This is what Ryle said. Surely, if words mean anything, we are meant to learn from these two figures that there must be something marked, distinct, and peculiar about our character if we are true Christians. It will never do to idle through life, thinking and living like others, if we mean to be owned by Christ as his people. Have we grace? Then it must be seen. Have we the Spirit? Then there must be fruit. Have we any saving religion? Then there must be a difference of habits, tastes, and turn of mind between us and those who think only of the world. It is perfectly clear that true Christianity is something more than being baptized and going to church. Salt and light evidently imply peculiarity, both of heart and life, of faith and practice. We must dare to be singular and unlike the world if we mean to be saved.